Welcome to the Refinitive Sustainability Perspectives podcast. Today, we continue our Women in Fintech series. All throughout March, we're spotlighting women who are delivering solutions today that will shape the fintech industry tomorrow. Anna Anison was named a tech industry insider by CNN three years in a row. Her background includes CEO for cloud storage provider, Forsync. Then she became, became co-founder of Pasari, a collaboration software in the funeral industry. After exiting Pasari, Anna joined the founding team at Domino Data Lab, working on building an enterprise data science management platform. Currently, Anna is running a boutique B2B marketing firm formulated by and is founder of the data science community event series, Data Science Salon. And is also a contributor on data science and marketing at Forbes. Welcome, Anna, to the podcast. I'm really curious to hear about your firm, formulated by and really bringing together events with AI and the spin there. But first of all, if the listeners are anything like me, we really want to understand what collaboration software in the funeral industry means. I have never heard of that before, so take it from there. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's, uh, you know, I get that a lot. And, um, you know, that's definitely a really, you know, kind of a, a morbid, morbid thing that people don't think about a lot, but it's actually something that's really uh, actually solving a big problem for people because, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of us have had a death in the family and sometimes you just have no idea what to do uh, or where to go. Uh, or pretty much how to approach the situation. So what Pasari does is really help uh, per that person really kind of figure out what to do, right? How to find a funeral home, how to get rid of the body, how to really collaborate with the funeral home and the other family members uh, to really make it like a really nice, uh, you know, obviously you can't really take all the stress out, but like less, you know, take the stress away from the family and really um, let the software do a lot of the work uh, and the organizing. Um, so, so that was really, you know, kind of in a nutshell, what it, what, what it is, it's kind of like in any industry, it's just like a SaaS platform for managing that process. Wow. And clearly you are a groundbreaker because, well, that's just the example. That's just at the tip of the iceberg. Let's get into the areas where you are breaking more ground. Tell us about your firm formulated by and just the use of data and science to really formulate this kind of one of a kind face to face digital experience. Talk to us. Yeah, about yeah, definitely. So, yeah, formulated by that's I've been, uh, you know, started this firm in San Francisco about five years ago now and um, moved it to Miami uh, and we've really flourished here and really, you know, we're really focused on a niche space, machine learning, data science and AI. So we work with companies that are, you know, pretty much, um, you know, doing innovative uh, groundbreaking things in that space and help them with marketing. And we're very data driven on our end as well. We have, you know, uh, when we were doing our in-person events, we, had an algorithm um, that we created that looked for conversations in different parts of the space. We were focused on the U.S. market, but we were able to figure out where people were talking about uh, this, the topics and the conversations in the space that, you know, uh, were relevant. And we would go to those markets with our events, the data science salons, and that really worked really well for us to really grow that community. 
Um, so, and we've, you know, really been able to implement that similar strategy for our clients. And then, you know, as COVID hit, we were able to pretty much pivot everything and do everything virtually. And as you can imagine, there's a lot more data out there uh, virtually now, since people are kind of communicating uh, in a virtual world. So we were actually able to scale and grow and uh, grow our team and everything. So um, yeah, it's been really exciting. And uh, we're always working on a lot of different projects and seeing how many, you know, just what's going on in the industry every day. It's just really groundbreaking. And I'm really, um, you know, it's, it's really an honor to be part of the space. So, Anna, let's start um, from the earliest point in your career. Did you start off in data? Were you a coder or was it more of a marketing strategy perspective that you had? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it's funny. I actually dropped out of college to, um, you know, kind of start my first company. Uh, and that was, you know, really um, kind of what really drove me here uh, into tech, um, because at that time, this was, you know, more than 15 years ago. Now there was no, you know, there was no boot camps or uh, GA or, you know, academies or online Coursera's or anything like that to teach you those things. So I pretty much taught myself uh, a lot of marketing, a lot of basic coding uh, and, you know, built that community from the ground up. And then it got acquired by a Japanese company actually randomly. So that kind of started, you know, my career. And then I went back to school and I got my business administration, you know, a management degree. Um, so and uh, but I've always been really into kind of business, like growing business. Uh, business ideas, like really, you know, uh, looking for kind of, you know, pretty much spaces where there was, you know, kind of uh, nobody there in that space, like the funeral industry was one of those, uh, for sure. Uh, that was a strategy, just looking for people that, you know, spaces that were not yet uh, really crowded. Um, and also marketing. Yeah, that's always been, you know, I've always I was one of the first people on Twitter. I was always very into social media and growth and community. And that's always been the the strategy that really uh, that I that I used to drive growth and the, um, the endeavors that I've been involved in. So you mentioned that your firm was randomly acquired by a Japanese firm. I have a feeling that wasn't so random. Could you take us through the process? If for those who are interested in you know talking to possible possible firms who are interested in acquiring, how do you make that happen? How do you get your firm on the market and position it? So that can happen? Well, I think there there's definitely a couple of different ways to do that. For me, I think it was more uh, a luck, a lucky thing, because I uh, met a person who introduced me to the buyer. Um, actually, at one of the first conferences I went to it was Web 2.0's uh, O'Reilly's, one of their first like tech conferences that they had. And I met that person there. And um, yeah, I mean, and it was just kind of a random acquisition because they were looking for um, I, you know, for users, because I grew that community to about a quarter million, uh, you know, women from 18 to 35, and they wanted that data. So, you know, it was like a no brainer <laughs> to get to acquire it. Uh, but I think these days, like, there's definitely a lot of, you know, especially now, a lot of acquisitions happening, especially internationally. So there's definitely, um, you know, you can join communities, you can find brokers that can uh, help you uh, sort that out um, because there's definitely um, if you have especially data or you have a really community a strong user base so you could show uh, monthly revenue you can definitely uh, make uh, a sale uh, for if you find the right buyer. 
So for founders who have these buyers approaching them, are there two or three top resources or mentors or top individuals that they need to have in their orbit? Who do they need to have as advisors or what resources they need to have? Just the top two or three. Well, I think it's definitely, it just depends on the size of your business. But I think if you're doing anything more than a million dollars in revenue per year, then you should definitely have uh, like a CFO uh, that could advise you or also like, you know, an external advisors or a board that can advise you uh, on things like that. Um, but, you know, I couldn't really specifically give you like one individual. Uh, I think it would be like case by case basis. But it would be really, you know, looking at the numbers and looking at the, you know, the pros and cons, right? If you staying in the business and actually generating the revenue yourself or actually selling it and having that chunk of money, right, to reinvest. So, um, yeah, it's really, I think it's a finance, it's a kind of a numbers game here. Mm, so having those finances in order always important. Yes. <laughs> as it, yeah. And as it relates to your your business now, you came into your current business. You've done it before. It was something that was not new to you. But for those who are going through owning a business, particularly women, particularly now in 2021, we know the numbers of the women who exit the work the workplace um, over two million in 2020, um, pandemic related. What would you say to them? Right now, things can look a little bleak, things can seem um, as if they're not moving forward quickly. What type of advice would you give to them that would really resonate for those who are going through a bleak time and what could really, what could whip them up for those who are thinking about giving up at this point? Um, I just, I mean, I think you really kind of have to see what you like doing and kind of figure out you know, because I think, uh, you know, there's cases where women have figured out that they actually want to be stay at home moms, which I think is a totally fine thing to do. Um, and I've actually had a couple of friends that ended up doing that. And, you know, one of them likes it and one of them doesn't. And for the one that doesn't, I definitely always tell her that she should not give up applying for jobs. She should look for maybe um, alternative kind of uh, since they do have boot camps and great uh, things online uh, and workshops and things that maybe doing some continuous education um, just in the field that you're interested in and maybe even starting a business or uh, exploring an idea that you've always wanted to do because that's a really great opportunity and time to do that because right now we're going to see a lot of growth happening next year. It's going to be like the roaring 20s all over again. So for those who have started businesses and who are finding it a bit difficult, what sort of resources would you offer to them or even words of encouragement? Yeah, I mean, I think just uh, for me, it's always been networking and meeting other women um, and other people just who can help you. Um, and I think that's really I, you know, it just depends, again, what kind of resources they're looking for. But I think just starting, you know, if, you don't, if you're not on LinkedIn already, you should definitely go on LinkedIn. You should see kind of set up your profile and me start networking with other folks on there that can help you also joining other uh, groups also for there's a lot of female led groups that, um, you know, that are really I think uh, I even started um, a meetup here for female entrepreneurs in Miami five years ago. And, um, you know, I think right now we have a couple thousand members in that. And I think every every city has something similar where you could go and ask for help. And there's always somebody that can help you even uh, next door is a place where people can go and ask for help. And there's definitely resources that you'll find there that you never knew that you had. So I think just being very open and honest and approaching people and being friendly uh, is really uh, will get you really far, I think, especially now.
Right. In terms of things that would get you far, those are this great insight, talking to people, networking. In terms of the technical skills, what are the top three coding languages that you would recommend? And are they industry specific? For example, I know I learned a bit of Python for fintech, but are there other languages out there that you would recommend that people start learning now if they are interested in, in data analytics and data science? Yeah, so I mean, I think Python, uh, yeah, you you nailed it. Python is the just overpassed R uh, as the language of the most popular coding language in data science. Uh, yeah, before it used to be R and now it's Python, but I think R is still definitely something you should consider, especially if you're doing, you know, any kind of statistics, even in marketing. Um, a lot of like heads of analytics, they, they know some R and Python. Um, but I think, you know, those are kind of the main uh, two languages. Julia is also kind of on up and coming. So we'll kind of see what happens to that one. But I definitely Python, if you had to choose one and do that, I would focus on Python. The world of MarTech in five years, what's going to be the biggest difference? Something that's really going to catch us by surprise in terms of where it is now and where it's going to be in the next few years. What would that one thing be? Um, gosh, I think there's just going to be a lot more precision on um, kind of the data that we're getting, right? There's just going to be a lot more that information we could get to make all of our marketing and advertising much better and more targeted and more uh, organic. Um, so I think that's where all of that is going. And I think tools like, you know, HubSpot and those kind of tools are just going to get smarter and um, you know, better, but I don't know, you know, again, from the marketing point, it's good from the consumer point. I don't know if that's good or bad, um, you know, because the more information we have on the consumer, it's just, you know, I don't know if that's a, a really something that um, people really like. Um, and I think uh, as the generation of people that have always been on social media, we kind of let that go. But I don't think everybody's on in that boat, really. But I think that's just going to we're going to lose more and more privacy and data. I think in the next five years. Data privacy continues to be a, a debate and we expect it to be a debate in the years ahead. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Great insight. Thank you. Joining us today is Rose Punkunis, who is the founder and CEO of Sue Dozy. Rose, thank you so much for joining. Of course. Thank you, Kisa, for having me. So one thing that's very interesting is that your background, Rose, is as a CFO, as a financial officer. So I would assume starting with a finance background is a pretty good place to be if you're interested in being a founder. Could you let us know your journey from being in a finance role to being in the role of founder and CEO? Yeah, sure. Of course. I'll actually start a little bit before I got into a finance role. Um, so I was in finance at Uber um, early in 2013, where there are uh, you know, just a few hundred employees all around the globe. Um, but actually before Uber, uh, between my MBA and uh, Uber, I actually worked at Apple in, in the iTunes department. Um, at the time, the data science and analytics team was a really small team. Just to um, highlight that, I was the only business analyst on the video business covering Apple TV, movies, and uh, television shows. And so from there, just using my analytics and um, business strategy skills, I actually moved into the finance department at Uber because of the organizational structure and how they had organized their um, business analytics and, and pricing internally. And so I got into finance at Uber. Um, and if you've taken an Uber ride <laughs> since 2013, 
Uh, I actually oversaw all of pricing, both macro and micro. Um, so if you had a surge price or a dynamic price ride, um, I was responsible for the algorithms and, and the pricing strategy there globally. Um, and, and at Uber, you know, because of the way the company grew from 2013 onwards, I really got to see how fintech played a role internally in the payment rails, moving money from riders to drivers, um, from the finance workflows, and then also algorithms and optimization. And so that's really what got me interested in the career in fintech. And then afterwards, I, I really uh, doubled down on the actual being a, a vice president of finance and then a CFO at two fintech companies afterwards. Um, and so after that, then then founding Sudozi. So going into it to being the founder of Sudozi, you mentioned quite an interesting path from being a CFO to going into Sudozi. Mm-hmm. What particular characteristics, what skills do you think served you well as you were contemplating becoming um, a founder? The, the ability to have uh, the quantitative skills um, certainly helped me transition from being a CFO to, to founder. Um, also, I, I had the opportunity to have a diverse set of experiences in different companies prior to being a founder from analytics to product, actually into some design aspects as well. Um, you'd be surprised how much design actually impacts uh, fintech and, and financial products. And so those exposures also helped me transition to being a founder. So we, we talked about what helped you transition, and I'm sure that there are probably people, mentors, role models in the industry that really gave you some insight. Could you talk us through how you came across these role models or these mentors or even sponsors, and what did they bestow upon you to help you make that switch? Yeah, and I, you know, I've had the fortune of working with a number of great role models, um, both direct managers and, and people who I've sort of watched as they've taken on leadership roles. Um, in the fintech world directly, I think just watching Max Levchin, and I had the opportunity to be in a small session with him once, but seeing how he saw the problems that existed in both companies that he's at, PayPal and Firm and a couple others, where other people didn't see that there were problems there, but he turned what he saw and the insights he had into amazing business solutions and, and really companies that are, are, are so large now. Um, so those that's kind of a, a higher level aspirational mentor. Um, closer to me, the CEOs I've worked with um, at all the companies I've been at, I've had the opportunity to work with them relatively closely. I've seen them really just um, be able to fight through various challenges, whether it be people's opinions or actual business challenges. and and um, see them persevere. And that's really had an impact on me and, and my decision to found a company. Great. And, and also in terms of your decision to found the company, especially in terms of seeing the challenges that some of your CEO partners have um, mm-hmm. have really gone through, we know about Uber and some of the issues around <laughs> yes. pay, as well as around gender, um, alleged gender discrimination issues that were alleged. Um, could you give us some thoughts around how that helped you better design your own company and some of the social issues that were top of mind for you as you were inspired to create your firm. Yeah. And this is, you know, very something I, I speak to pretty frequently with people I interview and just have conversations with. I think a lot of the chaos that is sometimes caused uh, or attributed to being a startup 
um, can actually be resolved with good communication and um, some a little bit more focus on HR earlier on. You know, not a ton. You don't have to spend all day <laughs> focusing on HR, but really having that empathy of the employee base, having the empathy of the person who you're speaking with, and whether it be the customer, uh, a teammate, and a, a, a someone who reports to you, um, having more of that earlier on is uh, can help tremendously as you're scaling the company. And so something I've uh, focused on earlier on is actually doing more of that. Um, again, it's not at the distraction of the business and I actually think it helps accelerate the business later on. Uh, a quick example is that I actually offer um, health insurance already, even though we're just a few employees. And so uh, having that um, empathy earlier on, um, in my opinion, has really can really just accelerate the business later and not distract it with uh, some of these other issues. Mm, wow. So that that's great. That really gave me the vibes of some um, of John Mackey's kind of compassionate <laughs> leadership with the insurance, yeah. piece especially really interesting. Let, let's get into Sudozi. Tell us about the model and tell us what you're looking to change with your firm. Yeah. So Yosi really came out of my personal challenges trying to find software that did uh, this set of function that I'm, I'm solving for. And, um, you know, the, the best example is actually um, a, an analogy where uh, there are enterprise level softwares to help companies manage vendors, um, keep track of spend requests internally and just have a better organized process around spend, especially as we are in a much more remote environment. You know, it's very hard to go to a finance person and tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, I'm going to spend you know, X, Y, Z on a marketing campaign um, and I'll send you an invoice later. And so all that could just be quite overwhelming at a large at even a small organization. And so I looked into softwares, you know, there are softwares out there like Coupa, SAP, Ariba. Um, my analogy there is, is like you would, for, for a company that's, you know, 50 people to 500 people, if you get those softwares, it's like buying a school bus to drop off, you know, two kids at daycare. Um, and so I didn't really find anything that was both fitting my budget as well as um, the software tools that I needed to help manage vendors and track data the way I needed to track them and um, eventually lead to uh, helping the expedite forecasting and budgeting as well. And so I'm building this set of tools and features to help finance leaders in a small and medium sized companies, you know, maybe a couple hundred people um, really be able to have a lightweight process of tracking vendors when those renewals are coming up um, how frequently you're paying these vendors to help keep track of cash flow, and also um, being being aware of who internally in your organization is responsible for each of these vendors. You know, do you have two different contracts with the same vendor from different departments? Um, all of that stuff is is pretty hard to keep track of manually. I love that analogy, buying a school bus to pick up two kids. That's, <laughs> that's perfect. That really describes, you know, I think in a very fundamental way, the lightweight process to track vendors and tracking cash flow when you're looking at really scaling for your business size. So right. excellent right. on that. A lot of what we're talking about, Rose, has its roots in STEM. So science, yep. technology, engineering, math, et cetera. Could you talk to us a bit about your STEM background, particularly as a younger person, as, as a youth, and how do you think that impacted your decision in terms of moving towards software right now at this point in your career? 
Yeah, so I was uh, fortunate enough to have, I went to a public school system that did actually have a computer science, it had a research program, um, and I was able to partake in some of those programs at the high school level. You know, I, 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 there weren't, in my memory, those equivalent opportunities at a middle school level or earlier, and I think if I had, you know, if those opportunities existed, I would have definitely been interested in that. But I certainly had exposure to software development and um, some of these other fields at an earlier level, and that really had a big impact on me. And so after I graduated from college, I helped um, work with an organization that brought uh, actually uh, app development and entrepreneurship to high school and younger girls. And I think that's the earlier you can expose um, all genders and all races to this type of um, activity, you know, more quantitative, um, you know, entrepreneurship type activity, I think the less you have to do to do catch up later. And so my, you know, my strategy and my belief is like, the, the earlier you can expose people to this, um, the more equal it's going to be later on. And speaking of equality and exposure, which is a great point, you know, there's been progress made recently to address the gap in terms of pay, in terms of equity. In mm-hmm. your opinion, what can be done to help us get there quicker? And are you able, as a founder, as a CEO of your own company, have you been able to come across any tips or any strategies that can help us get there quicker in terms of getting to pay equity? Yeah, so I, I certainly do. I think you know I can talk on this question for uh, many minutes, just on this question. But I'll focus on you know in, in the stage, later stage of career and, um, and you know salary and whatnot. And I think one of the things I've seen in tech industry is having specific requirements for roles that um, may not necessarily actually be helpful for that role. Uh, and so I'll I'll just focus on you know product for example. In, in many product roles, one of the requirements is having an engineering degree. And I think that companies who have that can evaluate what they're actually trying to go after with having that engineering degree, because as we all know, you know certainly having that degree cuts down on the number of female candidates um, that are eligible for that product role. Um, and I think you know many times you don't actually need the degree, but you need the ability to think and to have logic that um, that typically is correlated with an engineering degree, but but engineering degree itself doesn't cause that. And so really having hiring managers and companies evaluate what is it they're trying to go after with these um, required um, credentials and trying to come up with ways to evaluate those requirements uh, through the interview process or otherwise in a different way. And that's something that we're seeing a lot, Rose. We're seeing a lot of companies think twice about first of all, college degrees, period. And then if mm-hmm, you have mm-hmm. money, how specialized does it have to be? Have you seen a lot of traction being made there for companies actually saying, you know what, we're going to either not require a degree here, we're not going to de- require a certain specialized area of focus. How how broadly do you think that's been adopted at this point? I think there's been good progress. I think there can be more. Um, I think that particularly at sort of larger technology companies, um, internal movement to roles have uh, been fairly, I'd say, fairly good at relaxing the, um, I'll call them unnecessary requirements uh, for the sake of this conversation. And so I think having those uh, organizations organizations as they get larger, um, finding talent internally um, has been great. I think from an external perspective, um, I also think that 
various coding academies uh, have come up that really show that these skills can be um, learned and, and you don't have to have a four-year college degree to, to have these skills. And so uh, I also think that has been helpful in the industry externally, but I do think more can be done across the board. Absolutely. So what, what are you most excited about, Rose, as it relates to Sudozi and as it relates to fintech in general? Is there something that's coming down the pipeline in 2021 or maybe even further out that gets you really excited about the industry? Yeah, I, I think across the board on both B2B fintech as well as consumer fintech, there is a lot changing and a lot still to come. Um, this is one of those industries where, you know, if you think about your your technology used 10 years ago, you know, the consumer um, experience, whether it be social media or just how you live your life day to day has been changed a lot by technology. I think in the next 10 years, um, the way that we move money and the way that finance professionals work is going to be dramatically altered by technology. You know, I would love to say like Sudozi is going to play a huge part in that. And I hope that's true. But whether it be Sudozi or other fintech companies and tools, I, I do think that that change is coming. Wow. And that definitely I think speaks to the changes that we've seen over just the last couple of years and five years from now. It's very interesting mm -hmm. to see and think about where we will be. Rose Pankanis, thank you so much for speaking to us about Sudozi, about your journey and about the fintech industry overall. Well, thank you for having me, Kisa. This has been fun. We invite you to subscribe to the Refinitiv Sustainability Perspectives podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your content. What did you think about the podcast? Leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for updates on our show. You can even check us out on YouTube now. Thank you for joining. See you next time.